Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the podcast that follows the money behind the beautiful game. I'm Kevin Day and deep in the Sussex countryside is football finance expert at Liverpool University, Kieran Maguire. Morning, Kieran. Morning, Kevin. This is our last remote recording, I believe. Um, We've been given dispensation to go to Durham to record the next ones at... uh, at Dominic Current Cummings' parents' house, which I'm, which I'm really looking forward to. Which, which is confusing, because just outside your window, I can see Dominic Cummings peering in with a, a bunch of bluebells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not, let's not. We could make the whole pod about that. Um, I, I let's, about, let's get, that one's done I was, now. I was about to swear then, but um, <laughs> there are... <laughs> It's uh, what a country we live in, eh, Dominic? Uh, eh, Dominic? I just called you Dominic. There, see, I've got. See, I'm, associate, I'm associating Thanks. you with. <laughs> I'm associating you with a shady, arrogant spin doctors there. Um, yeah, let's um, let's stick to the football. I think be be wiser, wouldn't it? Really, I think. Yes. <laughs> I, I think our listeners realise where our politics lie, but yeah, just just today, and I've generally never seen Ali so angry, and she's been with me a long time. She's been angry before, but my God, she's angry today. And so am I, because I heard you flirting while she was sound checking. Is that okay, Ben? Once a baron, always a baron, Kevin. <laughs> That's my next T-shirt. I'm going to get that on my T-shirt. Once. Uh, anyway, I think we've put enough distance between ourselves and politics now. We can carry on with the football. It's it's questions today, Kieran, but first we have a couple of uh, news stories, and there's a bit of a Northwest thing happening. First of all, Rochdale have been given a loan by the local council to help them through. Now, I, I think this is a good thing, but you've kind of indicated... A couple of times that loans aren't always the way out of problems. Um, obviously, that's something my accountant's told me for many a decade. But you know, sometimes it is the only answer, isn't it? Well, I think I think it is the only answer. Um, I, I think it's uh, it's it's a great step by the council, and also um, they the the reason why they've given the loan. Um, they said it, it's citing the importance of sustaining the borough's sporting profile and heritage and enabling the club to continue its contribution to wider community benefits. And, mm. and this is something which I think from you know, day one of, of the pod, we've always been very keen to promote. If people are worried, if they're, if they're taxpayers, if they're council taxpayers, um, the, the council have taken out in a similar way to a mortgage. So it's not like just you know, an, an unsecured loan. So if, if the worst happens, then then they they will be able to get their money back. It's it's been uh, it's over a twelve month period, so it, it's yeah it's, it's a sticking plaster loan. Um, yep. It's got to be repaid, and uh, they, they've not told the amount, but yeah, that's between the two parties. But I think the principle involved, and, and also I think it gives hope for 
um, supporters and owners and, and players involved in, in a number of clubs mm. around the country who are genuinely fearing for their short-term future. Do we know if the initiative came from the council or from the club for this, Kieran? Well, I, I don't. I mean, I've, I've only si- I picked up the picture, uh, the, the, sorry, the story in the Manchester Evening News. Um, no doubt there has been ongoing discussions between the two parties for, for some time. The, the, uh, the, the council did, uh, I think they lent uh, Rochdale money to repurchase their stadium, mm. uh, their ground, uh, a few years ago. So clearly there's, there's a good relationship between the two parties. Um, and, and that's the way that things should be. You know, a, a, a council benefits from having a football club and football clubs from, from having a, uh, you know, a, a council which can see those benefits. Yeah, good town, Rochdale as well, home of the Cooperative Society, of course. Uh, and Rochdale were the first team to have a black manager back in 1961. So uh, a, a club that deserves financial stability, if, any, if ever one does. Um, to the big dog in the area, Man United. Two stories about Man United, in fact. Um, first one is they're suing the computer game football manager. Why is that? Um, well, they're saying that uh, fo- football manager, which, is, which has been going since 1992, uh, I'm sure many a football fan has wasted thousands of hours on it because it is one of those all-immersive things. Um, it, it has uh, it is references to all clubs, uh, of which Manchester United are one. And Manchester United are now saying that it's uh, effectively a breach of uh, intellectual property rights, um, the Manchester United badge, which is used on the football manager game, my understanding it's not the actual badge. You know, they've, they've not they've not paid for the license of it. They've used something else, which I, I guess they're entitled to do. And and, and we sort of get get into a, a murky world because sort of the more I delve into this, um, I think this is a bit of a sideshow between a war which is taking place between Electronic Arts, who uh, have the rights to the FIFA mm. game and therefore all the clubs there, and um, a company called Konami, which paid an absolute fortune to Juventus um, to have the sole rights to the Juventus name. And we had this discussion a, f- a few days ago, didn't we, in respect of Port Vale, that there's, there is no place mm. called Port Vale. Well, equally, there's no, there's no place as such called Juventus. Um, so therefore, they do have the rights to that name. Um, in, in respect of Manchester United, they're claiming that the word United belongs to them, which I think might rile fans of Newcastle, Leeds, <laughs> West, West Ham, West Ham yeah, and, and, course, and one yeah. or two others. Um, so it's all getting a bit uh, tacky. And of course, who are the winners in this? The lawyers. I, I'm, I'm slightly baffled by this story because, I mean, these games have been around for a long time and surely they are officially licensed, aren't they? I mean, these... You, it's not like Tooting Market, where you, you, if you buy a Man United bag in Tooting Market, you know it's not a Man United bag. But these games are officially licensed. Why, why is it only now that Man United have, have actually got the hump? Um, I, th- I think historically, um, the game has been licensed by the Premier League. Now, it could be that some of the clubs are taking their licensing rights in-house. Um, we, we saw something similar a few months ago when Liverpool Football Club tried to claim the rights to the word Liverpool. Right. And clearly, you know, as, as somebody that works at Liverpool University, we weren't over-impressed by that. <laughs> um, and also, you know, when, when you think about Liverpool and its history and heritage... There's yeah, you know, there's some famous music groups, uh, right. you know, the Spinners and uh, <laughs> Cilla Black. You know, sort of, you know, if you if you're familiar with your pop beat combos, 
um, those type of uh, those type of institutions have also contributed towards the name of the city over over the hundreds of years. So Liverpool Football Club didn't get too far by trying to press through there. Here, there. I think Manchester United, they just ought to come to some form of settlement uh, with, uh, with Sports Interactive, who are the company involved, um, rather than using these, these bully boy tactics. Mm. Because I suspect they feel that if they, get a, if they are successful with this, then you know, can, can newspapers use the words mm. Manchester United without record? Can you and I talk, to, talk about them and so on? So um, it, it's going to run and run. Um, I don't think United have done themselves any favours. They they certainly lost a lot of good faith with fans. Um, I don't know whether you saw the the Panini stickers, the cheapskate Panini, where people, you know, a couple of fans, they just drew pictures of mm. of their favourite players for individual clubs. It became a bit of a social media hoot, and uh, then Manchester United came down and said, "Well, you can't use our name. You can't." You know, and it just seemed, you, you, I think, I think clubs need to have a sense of proportionality and perspective. Um, you know, we both know if we go to matches outside a big club, there will be blokes selling scarves and merchandise and so on outside, which isn't officially merchandised, and, and yet they tend to turn a blind eye to those. Yeah, I've never actually played uh, the computer game Football Manager. I've got you down more of a Dungeons and Dragons man, really, but and possibly you play the game as well, Kieran. I don't know. Um, now, there's another Man United... <laughs> it's the only reason I kept that question in, to be perfectly honest. Um, there's another Man United question, which I know... Um, there's not a question. There are Man United questions. Another Man United story, which I know has um, got you all a quiver, and it's about their third quarter accounts. And, well, I, I know how much you like... It's your favourite quarter, isn't it? The third quarter accounts. Um, but it's, it's only just sort of hitting the media. There, there's uh, issues around VAT in particular, aren't there? Well, well yes, and... and um... It, it, it takes a lot to rile me, but one of the things that, that does... <laughs> yeah, OK, I'll let that one pass, but yeah. Being interrupted, that's one of the things that really riles you, sorry. <laughs> um, one of the things that does is that if a club announces something via something to do with the finances via, the press re- via a press release, it tends to be you know, mainly positive issues, and um, then 24 hours later... The real numbers come out, and I go through them. I go, well, this this wasn't mentioned, that wasn't mentioned, and so on. So Manchester United announced their their third quarter results on Thursday. Um, I, I spent most of the next twenty four hours saying, actually, United's results look you know, on the basis of this press release, they they look okay. You know, they're, they're clearly they're suffering as a result of COVID. They're, they've they've uh, they've got the problems in the sense that they're in the Europa League as opposed to the Champions League, but they're as good as could be expected. Lots of people were getting the knickers in a twist about that. I was saying, well, just just chill out, dudes. You know, it's uh, it's it's not as bad as it seems. Um, and then uh, Friday night, stroke Saturday morning, I get alerts um, when things are filed in New York. So something pinged into my inbox at about three o'clock in the morning. So I immediately open it. The Baroness thinks, what's going on here? Yeah, she's more concerned. It's, could this be a woman from Moscow or Grimsby uh, phoning me or contacting me? And I say, no, no, it's, it's a Manchester United a set of accounts. So I go through, and th- this is where I think, I think, again, a bit of an own goal from the club. Um, they, um, they, they've, they've started buying back their own shares from the stock market to help prop up yep. the price companies do this nothing wrong with that so they spent three and a half million pounds doing that they've announced that they're going to pay the shareholders 11 million pounds on june the 2nd as a dividend 
well, if they want to do that, that's okay. But it seems a strange thing to do if they're making a loss. But, but yeah, that's 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 all fine and dandy. Uh, it's it's perfectly legal. And then I go to, go into the small print, and it says, oh. We've, we've collected £10 million of VAT from selling tickets, selling merchandise and stuff, but we're not going to pay it. We're not going to pay it for, for 12 months because the government said, well, you don't have to, uh, and, and we're doing it for our cash flow benefits. Now, if Manchester United had just done the VAT d- delay, I'd have said, yeah, that's perfectly understandable. But how can you justify not paying the taxpayer? And that's mm. you and I, remember? You're not paying money towards the taxpayer because they've collected the tax. But they can afford to pay £11 million to shareholders and they can afford to buy back their shares. And, of course, now if they go into the transfer market in the summer and start buying players, it's just going to look particularly bad. So, um, yeah, I I tweeted that at four o'clock yesterday morning. That appeared to cause a bit of a storm. It has been picked up by some of the media and, and by all accounts, Manchester United aren't very happy. In general, or with you? Well, with me, I think. Can I? Um, I just want to get a handle on this. Now, I'm, I'm talking as somebody who is about to do a similar thing on a much smaller scale. I'm about to tell HMRC that it's going to be a while because you know we lost all our finances in this house, and and money I had put aside for VAT is going to have to wait a little bit. I'm I'm hoping that HMRC will be as sanguine about my delay of a couple of thousand quid, as they are about Man United's delay. But I just want to check, is there any link between the the timing of the payment of this dividend and the non-payment of the VAT? Are they coincidental, or are you you implying that there is a... a, a, They are... No, no, they're not not directly linked. Um, But to a certain extent, it's its ability to pay. As 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 you've said, with regards to your circumstances, you know, I I appreciate, you know, uh, Ali, your wife, she can't work at present because of the nature of the industry. You've got Mm. other family members who can't work. So it it is restrictive. For small businesses, what the government has done is the right thing. Nobody is denying that. But you're not going to pay yourself a huge dividend out of your company or pay yourself a bonus out of your, your earnings next week on the back of, but also say to HMRC, by the way, I can't afford to pay you, but I can afford to pay me. And um, in, the, in the case of Manchester United, I think to a certain extent, they want to have their cake and eat it. Hmm. They've got the benefits of being registered in the Cayman Islands. Now, the only reason why companies set up in the Cayman Islands is because it's a tax haven. I've got no issue with that on an individual company basis. I don't think I don't particularly think it's a good thing from a from a, a, a global basis from here in the UK. But but it happens. They publish their accounts in the, in the USA, so therefore they've got to publish them every quarter. And they're saying, well, other clubs are doing it as well. That's fine. Manchester United are the only football club in England mm. that pay themselves a dividend or rather pay their owners a dividend twice a year. And that's the bit which I think sticks in the throat of many fans. It, it, it does. And there's more to come from this story. So, but it, it is, as we say, a questions pod today. So we need to get onto some questions. So we have a lot of them. Good questions as well. Um, just to avoid any people emailing in and accusing me of hypocrisy. Uh, I'm not a company. I'm a sole trader. And I am registered in Sutton, not the Cayman Islands. Basically, so just just to clear that up in case people were wondering, um, I wish I wish I had the dividends to pay myself, Kieran. That would be lovely. Um, now, questions today, they're mainly old time non COVID questions, Kieran. Actually, I got quite emotional when when 
when Guy sent these through. It's just like the old days, like the first. Um, it's great. Two or three weeks. Well, yeah, it's like the first. I was going to say it's like the first two or three weeks we did this only with people listening, which is it's lovely. Um, and we have a Man United theme for the first two questions. In fact, the first question is from David Stout. Uh, he's a Man United season ticket holder. Uh, I'd be interested, David, to hear what you think about what Kieran's just said. Actually, um, David talked about something we have mentioned quite a few times on on this pod, but he's put some detail on it. Old Trafford is showing its age, he says. Uh, it's no longer deemed good enough for Champions League finals, etc. Could Man United afford a 1.5 billion Spurs-style same-site total rebuild? And would it be worth it to boost matchday income, stage concerts, sports events, etc.? In other words, he's saying what a lot of Man U fans are saying, that United are falling behind in terms of corporate potential, aren't they? Yes, uh, and uh, I, th- I think David's made a valid point here. Um, in terms, could they afford to borrow £1.5 billion? In my opinion, they, they could. Um, they do have cash reserves themselves, of course. Um, it would take their total borrowings up to around about £2 billion. Wow. But if you're, if you're borrowing at, uh, yeah, what, 3 3.5%, so the interest cost... At three and a half percent on two billion is what seventy five million a year. Um, that's that's fine. Manchester United were paying out more interest on that under the early years of the Glazers um, when they acquired the club in, in in annual interest, and and they managed to cope well. They managed to win trophies. They did have the, the benefit of Sir Alex being a pretty amazing manager at the time as well. So to a certain extent, financially, they were probably punching above their weight during that period. If the new stadium comes through with a 90,000-seater capacity, you've only got to look at what Spurs are achieving. Spurs mm. are generating, I think it was, 800 grand a match from catering sales alone, which is five times that Manchester City generate oh, wow. from um, the Etihad. So it's because that the stadium is geared towards getting people out of their money. Mm. Also, if you take a look at the average season ticket price at Spurs, it's much higher than both Manchester United and Manchester City. I think what United would be in a position to do would be that if they if they did that to, to Old Trafford, you can bet your bottom dollar that a much higher proportion of seats and uh, availability of access to matches would go to the Prawn Sandwich Brigade, who, of course, pay a higher uh, a higher per seat fee. So I, I think it's, uh, it, it's a project that would work, but clearly in a COVID environment, it's, it's not the time to be making mm. that decision. And you know, we, there would be the issue of where would Manchester United play their matches in the interim. Um, I think there's another ground in Manchester with a you know, reasonably decent size they could go to if they wanted to. They have, they, they have historically, of course, played at Main Road. After the war, yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's, not, it's not impossible. So, yeah, I, th- I think David's got a good point about this. And I've got to be honest, um, you, you know, we, we've both been to Old Trafford as away fans. Mm. It, it does look pretty tatty inside. And, and, you know, mm. and the, the, the catering areas, the toilets and so on, sort of are very much of, of, a, of a former era. And I think fans expect a wee bit more. I, I appreciate for many fans going to Old Trafford, it is a dream and so on. And when you get inside, it's, it's a bit, bit like the first time I went to Disney and, and found it to be... Oh, it's not quite as up-to-date as I was anticipating. Well, that very much depends how old you were the first time you went to Disney, Kieran. If you were only eight, that's fine. If, if it was last year, less so. I, I, I loved Euro Disney, except, of course, I wouldn't go on the scary rides, and that was only a couple of years ago. Um, it, it, it would seem 
from what you've told me on recent pods, Kieran, it would seem a no-brainer for a club the size of Man United to take that size of loan out because it, it clearly seems that the bigger the loan you take out, the less likely you are to be asked to repay it. Like as you say, with, with Tottenham, the, the banks get so much money in interest that they'll just keep kicking the repayment of the loan down the line anyway. So it does seem a very viable option, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, uh, yeah. W- w- when you are lending money. Uh, to a to a company just as to an individual you you do a credit check and frankly Manchester United is probably about as good as you can hope for because they're not let's be honest they're not going to get relegated so therefore they've got the mm. the rewards of being in the Premier League forevermore they do have this amazing commercial arm um, the, the prospect of ninety thousand tickets at present Manchester United make one hundred and ten million pounds a year from ticket sales. Well, you know, there's, that you could add that, you, you know, that you could, you could certainly take that to 150 quite easily, which would more than pay for the extra interest um, involved, and and then they'd be a winner. There's just this interim period of what do you do whilst you know, the, the the construction was taking place. All right, now our next question is from a, a also a Man United fan. His name is Mike, uh, just Mike. Uh, you know my opinion on people just sending in first names but we'll let this one go because he's also a former student of yours Kieran, Mike, Uh, he puts in brackets great lecturer uh, I put in brackets, feel free to compliment me occasionally, folks. That's fine. You know, there's, there's two cats in this basket. Um, <laughs> do you remember Mike at all? I, I remember a Mike or two. Yeah, I, I do. I do. <laughs> yeah, Corey, I know you remember a Mike or two. In the context of university lecturing, let's, let's, let's take Blackpool nightclubs out of it. Let's take any Mikes you may have met at the Blackpool nightclub out of the equation. Um, of course he remembers you, Mike. I can tell by the look on his face he remembers you. Um, Mike clearly has been one of your students because he's asked a proper accounting question. Um, to what extent, Mike says, do clubs use external debt to fund operations, transfers, capital expenditure, etc.? Do they use it too little or too much? Now, I'm not entirely sure what external debt means. I know I have a lot of it. But I mean, I presume that means mortgages. That means rather than money from shareholders or owners, this means loans, mortgages, etc., does it? Perfect. Absolutely. You got it nailed. There's there's two types of borrowings from a football club. Um, You you can borrow from the owners. And the the benefit of borrowing money from the owners is that it can be interest free. So, So Mike Ashley, for all his criticism from Newcastle fans, has lent £111 million interest free. Clearly, at my club, we've got Tony Bloom, who's who's lent nearly three hundred million interest free. Um, Huddersfield, you know, many Wolves, and so on. So this is this is something which is uh, quite common. You've got Roman Abramovich at Chelsea. Sorry to interrupt you there, Kieran, but I think people might like to know that the notion that Mike Ashley, for example, is doing something interest free. Um, intrigues me is that out of the goodness of his heart or is there are there sound business reasons for club owners giving interest-free loans um well there's there's benefits certainly there's benefits to the clubs there's relatively few benefits to the owner um except i mean it it depends how machiavellian you want to be um lots of newcastle fans take the take the view that uh mike ashley benefits from Sports Direct's uh, involvement with Newcastle in terms of selling kit and advertising, um, but also by by lending the money interest free, it increases your chances of staying in the Premier League. And when it comes to selling the club, you're going to get a far higher price for a Premier League club right. than if it dropped into the Championship. I, I think that's a little bit tenuous myself. You know, I'm, I'm I will give my cashly stick, and, and indeed I have done historically. But on this particular one. 
um, I, I think he's he's done the right thing. You know, he's 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 uh, he's he's invested money in the club. He did inherit a mess, and I think sometimes Newcastle fans forget how poor the finances were before he arrived because it was the Keegan era and, and Newcastle was this entertaining, swashbuckling football team that, uh, that, that were great to watch. And clearly you know, th- that takes priority over the, the tediousness of the finances. How much would you give me not to go to the tabloids with a quote saying, Kieran Maguire says Mike Ashley did the right thing? I'll just take that completely out of context and put it Pro- out probably- there. Probably cover your VAT bill, I'd imagine. <laughs> so that's so that's the, that's the the internal debt, if you like. So the external debt. To answer Mike's question, to what extent do clubs use external debt, and do they use it enough? Um, it, it, it comes back to the business model. So if we have uh, if we have a club such as Manchester United or Spurs, the business model is very much traditional business orientated. Um, the, the aim of the owners is to make money out of the club or at least to break even. Um, and therefore, they, they will go to banks rather than put the money in themselves. The Glazers didn't have any money. Um, and it's, and um, again, going back to United's third quarter results, Manchester United have now spent £828 million in interest to the banks to acquire a club with an initial loan of £700 million. So you know, clearly right. that's the, the downside yeah, of all yeah, this yeah. is that money is oozing out of football into the world of finance. Hmm. If we take a look at the likes of Manchester City and Chelsea, we've got the, the owners funding the club as opposed to external, externalities. And that means that there is no interest. More money can be reinvested into uh, building the squad, into building infrastructure uh, and things of that nature. So, so th- those are the two, two sort of models. We, we then get into sort of a, a little bit of another form of external debt, which, which a lot of fans aren't familiar with. And I think, again, we have touched upon this in the past. It's where clubs are borrowing money on the strength of player sales. They're, they're effectively uh, selling a player getting an IOU from another club and then taking that IOU to a bank and swapping that for cash. So that's so that's the that's sort of the new form of external debt. That that is it is it is quite niche, but my concern is that uh, there's there's a potential domino effect uh, arising here as a result of COVID-19 because if some of the the money's due from other clubs for player sales aren't paid then you've got an IOU which is worthless and the banks are going to send the boys around to try to get their money back. Okay, well, funny enough, our next question is from a Newcastle fan. Um, Remember what he said about Mike Ashley as he answers your question. Um, It's from Juan Budiman, who's in Malaysia. Uh, I hope I pronounced that um, correctly. I think I nailed the Juan, but uh, I hope I got the Budiman right. Um, this is a good question. I think it's an interesting one um, and topical as well. Now, one's question is about managers' salaries. The rumours that Mauricio Pochettino was offered £19 million a season recently to manage Newcastle. And one's question is, would that £19 million also cover the backroom staff that Pochettino would want to come with him? Or is that purely just for Pochettino himself? Because as we know, you don't just hire a manager anymore in the Premier League. You hire his team. And that could be two, three, four, five, ten people, couldn't it? Yes, I, I think when these numbers are quoted, it is normally for the whole package. Um, certainly, if, if you take a look at the uh, redundancy packages 
uh, which have been announced by clubs in, in the small print of their accounts. Um, when Liverpool got rid of Brendan Rodgers, that was £15.7 million, but that included his other members of staff. Uh, Conte, Antonio Conte at Chelsea was £26 million. Mourinho was 19.6 at Manchester United. David Moyes was only £5 million at Manchester United, even though he had a six-year contract, because they had this very, very smart clause in the contract uh, along the lines of, if we do not qualify for the Champions mm. League, we only have to pay you one year's salary as compensation as opposed to the rest of your salary. And of course, they they they, they sacked him the day after they couldn't qualify. Mm. Um, so I, I know one or two clubs sort of, bits and pieces and the manager's salary is actually normally um, with reference to his team as well but okay. the, the, the vast majority of that is going to the manager himself well it's funny because I remember I think it was probably the first or second pod we did it's, my eyebrows were still relatively fixed um, but I remember you saying at most Premier League clubs the manager was probably the worst paid person there certainly to all the players we were getting more than the manager at most Premier League clubs I remember you saying I think for a lot of clubs uh, if, if they are not marquee managers Right. So, you know, the, the likes of Roy or Graham Potter at, at my club and, uh, you know, Southampton, Burnley and so on, um, the, the the players will be often on more money than the manager himself. And, and it could be that he's not even in the top 20 um, because quite often they're, they're grateful to, to have got the job to increase their profile. Right, another question um, from overseas, actually. This is um, from Big Al. Just Big Al. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, again, you know, just I, I prefer surnames, but somebody calls Big Al. I'm not going to argue with Big Al, frankly. Big Al can <laughs> call himself what he wants. Um, Big Al says, "I listen to you guys here from over the pond." Big Al's in America. You'll be amazed to hear. So I'm going to be America or Australia. Um, Big Al says, uh, "Oh, Kevin is one funny dude." Finally. Finally, I get my ears tickled a little bit. Thank you for that, Big Al. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing in advance because he says, although the Baron is weird, having a commie girlfriend. <laughs> um, Thanks, big, Al. Yeah, Al, listen, mate, I'm not sure they ever talked politics, but um, they, did, they did go at it hammer and sickle. But um, <laughs> um, Big Al wants to know what the difference is between the way the EPL, the English Premier League, splits money compared to the way... The NFL does it. Now, interestingly, that Big Al uses the word commie girlfriend because my understanding is that the distribution of money in American sport is is relatively socialist compared to the distribution of money in English sport. Is that correct? Very much so. If, if we take a look at the NFL as a model, what they do is all merchandising and all of the TV money is pooled and it is split evenly between all the clubs in the NFL. As far as gate receipts are concerned, 60% goes to the home club, 40% goes into a pool, and then that is distributed evenly between all the clubs. Whereas if we compare that to the the Premier League, the home club keeps 100% of Mm. match day income. Um, as far as merchandising is is concerned, um, again, that goes to the home club. There are some central sponsorship contracts um, negotiated by the Premier League, which are split evenly, but the sums involved there are not are not huge. I mean, g- going back to um, what we were talking about in terms of uh, 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 electronic arts and FIFA, FIFA, the FIFA computer game, yeah, that's that's uh, negotiated by the Premier League, and then they split the money there between all the clubs evenly, is my understanding. Um, and when it comes to TV, um, we are seeing more and more of the money going to the bigger clubs. So, 
Um, they they reformulated the the formula for distribution. Historically, um, all of the overseas money, um, which if you think about it, the, the overseas TV deals now match the domestic TV deals. Historically, that was split evenly between the 20 clubs. From this season onwards, it's based on where you finish in the league. Mm. So more and more money is, is going to, to the rich um, and, and less to the, you know, let, let's be honest, the also-rans in the Premier League as far as the, the, the broadcasters and as far as many many of the media commentators are concerned. Um, and yeah, that's, that, that has some merit, I, I guess, to some, well, certainly to the, the bigger clubs. Um, but as we are seeing, it, it is leading to an increased polarisation of wealth and power uh, amongst the elite. And is that in the best interests of the Premier League? Um, you know, I've, I've, I've just been watching the, uh, the Last Dance on uh, Netflix about the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. Mm. And one of the things you do pick up about American sport is that at the start of the season, you're never quite sure who's going to win it. And, and that, that leads to greater interest and excitement. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive in a way, isn't it? From what we all think we know about American business, you'd imagine that the American sports model would, would be the same. But, and this is a, a presumably historically a conscious decision, which means that small clubs like Green Bay can compete on a, le- a level playing field with big clubs like San Francisco. Yes, and, and the logic is is that the purpose of American sports is they are franchises. Yeah. Yeah. So what you want to make sure is that everybody that buys a franchise has a relatively equal right to the rewards of, of the overall product. Um, and they do get clearly a, a little bit of extra money from uh, their own their home gate receipts and things of that nature, but it's it's not going to be huge. Um, it means that owning a franchise uh, gives you a, a, a shouting chance. And remember, you've also got their draft system, mm. whereby the side that finishes bottom um, of the league gets the first pick of the the, you know, the, the, the college sports, which which mm. are huge in America. I think you know, people have got. I, I've taught at Stanford, and their their college sports arena was just sensational um, in in terms of how many people it could fit in. Um, and that that does make it for a, a more democratic and more perhaps egalitarian sport. If you just ignore the gambling, womanizing, cocaine, and, and general violence that goes with the U.S. sports. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on the Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is the show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Well, you know, we all like a little sideline in our sport every now and again. But I'm glad I'm glad the franchise thing came out there because it's it's almost reassuring to know that the level playing field comes from a capitalist initiative originally, so that the millionaire owners have got a, an, an equal chance of competing with other millionaire owners. Um, a more domestic matter now uh, before we go abroad again. Chris Kay, hello, Chris. Um, now, Chris Kay wants a, a little bit more extra detail on recent discussions we've had about 
the leadership of the PFA with Dave Kitson putting himself forward for Gordon Taylor's job. Um, the PFA, for those of you who don't know, is, is the Professional Footballers Association, essentially the Players' Trade Union. Um, and Chris would like some insight into their finances in general, but in particular, Gordon Taylor's salary, which comes up a lot on this show. Um, Chris wants to know why it's been allowed to grow so much, because it's quite an eye-opening sum. And what is the accountability for his salary, Gordon Taylor's salary? Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of a trade union. Yeah. You, you are you in equity? Something something similar? Uh, I'm not in equity, no, because they're notoriously right wing. But um, I am a member of a trade union. Right. Yes. Okay, so so we're both members of trade unions. We we pay our monthly subscriptions, and we, we expect them to just run themselves for our benefit. The Professional Footballers Association is a successful trade union because effectively, when the Premier League was set up. Um, as part of the negotiations, the players said, we want a fixed percentage of the TV deal. So I think mm. it's 5% of the TV deal goes to the PFA. And every time that deal gets renegotiated between the broadcasters and uh, and the Premier League, the Premier League go to the go to the PFA and say, you're getting an awful lot of money out of this. Would, would you mind reducing your share? And Gordon Taylor says no. no. <laughs> And uh, he, he says no every single time. And on, on, on the back of that, the, the, the PFA has generated a lot of wealth. It's, I think it's got around about 40 to 50 million pounds in not necessarily cash, but sort of investments and things of this nature. So it, it's a wealthy trade union in terms of generating cash. It then distributes that money. Um, you know, I've, I've taught players um, on courses where, who have been funded mm. by the PFA, you know, players who are looking to move on post career. So, you know, they they do fund their members. They do give money to causes as well. You know, which you know, the Football Foundation to charities and so on. Some of those look perhaps a little bit low. Uh, I, I know that Jeff Astle's daughter has been disappointed with the the contribution to dementia research, for example. Um, mm. So that's where the money comes from. And on the back of that. Um, Gordon Taylor is is presently getting over two million pounds a year as the head of the union. Um, that does make him the the world's highest paid trade union boss. Um, some people are saying that does seem high for effectively just just saying no every three years. Um, <laughs> and uh, but there's never been enough of uh, a groundswell of feeling amongst the membership for somebody else to put their name forward um, until now. Uh, and Dave Kitson has been quite vocal in terms of his uh, reservations about Gordon Taylor's uh, running of the, of the PFA. They have been relatively quiet um, over the course of the last couple of months with regards to COVID and, and, and the rights of their members and so on. But that, again, they've, they've stuck up for the members in saying, well, no, you don't, you don't have to take a pay cut. So, oh. um, you know, they've advised members um, and by all accounts, at present, they are doing a lot of work um, in, in respect of giving players advice and support in, in what is a very complex time. Now, how much of that is due to the general administrative body of, of the PFA and how much of that is due to Gordon Taylor himself? You know, we're not in a position to, to comment, I don't think, because we don't know it's inner workings. We we both know a, a couple of uh, ex footballers, not yeah, not the big names, but a couple of Mets. And in general, they're full of praise for the the PFA and what the PFA offered. There is an issue 
for example, that they offer retraining for players about to retire, mainly in media work, which means suddenly you've got 200 ex-players trying to get a, a, a radio job with Radio Stoke, um, probably which you've already taken. Um, uh, but my, my, the, the PFA is a charity, isn't it? It is, yes. Now, this is my problem with Graham Taylor's wages because I'm a trustee of Palace for Life, the Palace Foundation, which is a charity. Um, uh, when the chief executive's salary comes up for consideration, and, and we're talking a figure considerably, trust me, considerably less than Graham Taylor's, he's asked to leave, and then we discuss it, and we think because of the good work he's done, this tiny increase in a not very big salary in the first place is more than justified that he comes back and we say and and again for any people um involved in discussions they're asked to leave it's it's so it, it's one thing him being paid that much money as head of a trade union but as head of a charity that strikes me as being an excessive amount of money albeit we've learned that he he says no in a very effective way but that's a lot of money and i, I just wonder whether the charities commission would not be thinking the same way well i think the charities commission is taking a look at the pfa and the way it's run uh i i do have a copy of the pfa charity accounts and and i know when it was set up when it was i think it was converted into a charity in 2012 or 2013 and in the very first year there were no salaries being paid out of it so i thought well this was fantastic and then I sort of followed the, you know, the, the, the trail of crumbs through the following years. And I might be wrong, but I'm pretty certain from memory that the total salaries being paid out are now around about £4 million. So that's been right. a fairly steep increase over a relatively short period of time. And I'd certainly be interested to see what Dave Kitson's views are in terms of you know, if he does stand um, as an opponent, as, as an alternative to Gordon Taylor, where he stands in terms of his salary. Mm. Uh, you know, is he going to say, well, I'm only going to accept X or um, I'm going to don- or I'm going to give my salary to or a proportion of my salary to the charity? You know, what, what is the way forward? Um, you know, is, is it Emperor's New Shoes? Is it, is it, is it uh, Animal Farm that we're moving into? Or uh, is it going to be a, a genuine reduction and, and a greater focus upon the very good work that the PFA does? Mm. And, you know, and, and, you know, you, you, I've, I've, I've spoken to players. Um, I think when uh, we had Lee Wogan on the show, uh, Willie Wogan um, from uh, from Dover Athletic, he again was said that he was really grateful. You know, they'd been given impartial sound advice and, and he'd, he'd appreciated it. Yeah, I like the way you say I've got a copy of the PFA's annual accounts uh, in a way that indicates you'd be surprised that I haven't. I just thought I just assumed you'd had a birthday and the Baroness had bought you something lovely. Um, we still have a couple of questions to go, and I'm, I'm aware that this pod is already starting to get a little bit longer. Um, I don't mind because not many of us have got much to do, and we have intelligent listeners. But you know how Guy, our producer, gets a bit antsy once he. It's, it's almost like he's putting his own money up for this somehow. He's just like an old fashioned Victorian boss. I'm surprised we're not paid in tokens that we have to spend in his shop. Um, I say paid, that's very much an inverted commas. Um, we're going abroad now. Giovanni Malacani um, is in that beautiful, stylish city, Milan. Um, Giovanni's question, uh, Kieran, um, does Kieran believe, uh, and again, they always say, does Kieran believe? It's never, do you believe, the pair of you. It's always, does Kieran, what does Kieran think? Um, yeah, never mind, I'm, I'm perfectly happy sitting on top of this organ, rattling the tin. Um, does Kieran believe that the impact of COVID-19 all over Europe, especially on smaller clubs, 
could lead to the creation of a European Super League. That I, I will see the richer clubs that will ride this out, sort of circle the wagons and make more money in future and, and discard the rest of us. Um, I, I think it will accelerate the the desire for this. Champions League format, which is which is a quasi closed shop, whereby um, it's going to be. I think it's the what the latest proposal is two divisions of sixteen, whereby the top twelve are guaranteed to appear in the following year's Champions League, um, and what this will result in is that only the champions of domestic divisions will qualify for the Champions League for the following season. Um, which which will cause issues, I think, in the Premier League itself, because mm. you know, rightly or wrongly, there's a bun fight for the top four places at present. We we all know that Liverpool have won the Premier League, but there's still interest. You know, is is position four or position five, depending upon the Manchester City ruling, is that going to be Spurs? Is that going to be Manchester United? Is it going to be Wolves? Is it going to be Sheffield United? I think there's there's genuine competition for the minor places, which keeps a bit of intrigue, especially for the uh, broadcast viewer. If it's just going to be the champions of the Premier League and clubs know that they're guaranteed a European place and all of the riches that that would bring and, and the money involved will be huge, um, will they take it? Will they take their eye off the ball um, in in a? I, I think what we I think we will still see domestic leagues, but I think there's potential for them to be slimmed down. Um, there'll be a lot of pressure on that, um, and the Premier League as a product will probably decrease in terms of its value. Mm, it's slightly depressing to hear that. I've, I had an idea for an international competition for UEFA where the just the champions of each division played each other in a cup competition. That'd be a good idea, wouldn't it? I, I think uh, I'll, yeah. I'll tweet that out. And, yeah, just uh, see if there's any interest in that at all. There we go. Yeah, uh, yeah but, that's novel. Yeah, until one of them gets knocked out in an early stage, which is why we found ourselves in this in the first place. Now, this next question is probably the most international question we've ever had. And you and I, we are we are we're men of the world in 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 well in your there's many ways of putting that question, but in your <laughs> you're a man of the world in more ways than one. But we are we we like to see ourselves as as internationalists. We're not we're not narrow and parochial. I like to think. Um, so this question comes from Jorge Barreto. Uh, again, I hope I pronounced that right, Jorge. Now Jorge is a Brazilian. He's a fan of the pod, but he's a Brazilian. He's currently waiting for your book to arrive at his home. In Latvia, uh, so he's a Brazilian who lives in Liga, uh, in Riga. He's a Brazilian who lives in Riga, in Latvia, uh, and his question is about the Saudi owners of Sheffield United. So we've got a Brazilian in Latvia asking about the Saudi owners of Sheffield United, and Jorge makes a very, very good point here because there's a, a lot of fuss about Newcastle, but Sheffield United are owned by a Saudi prince. Um, which seems to have slipped under the radar of many. He says, of course, the circumstances are slightly different. But Jorge would like to know what Sheffield United's finances are like in in general. How much has he invested? And is there a correlation, do you think, between their superb recent form and the Saudi investment? Um, He's invested bugger all. Oh, um, is is the long and the short of it? Uh, could could you not the, come up with a more international way of saying it than bugger all? I've just said we're not parochial people, and you're <laughs> going bugger all. It's about I'm also I let Emperor's new shoes go, but I'm not letting bugger all go. Come on, <laughs> yeah. The the, the, the Saudi uh, Prince Abdullah, um, he the, the, the Saudi royal family uh, is is quite 
big. I think, I think the, the, is it the King Saud or Prince Saud, the, the original Saudi prince, uh, I think he had about 50 kids and they had quite a few kids themselves. So it's, it, to become a prince is, is quite common. Oh, okay. um, so it's very much a part of the extended Saudi royal family. And he makes his wealth, and I've done my research on this, um, he makes his wealth from a Saudi papermaking company, which isn't quite as glamorous as you'd expect it to be. I genuinely thought you were going to say paper round then. <laughs> He's got a Saudi paper round. I thought, my God, if they're making that much money doing a paper round. Uh, yeah, so that doesn't sound as glamorous. So he's, but he's invested no money. So, so clearly the Saudi owners of Newcastle are operating on a completely different wealth level than this guy then. Yes, the, 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 the potential owners of Newcastle is the Saudi investment fund. So effectively, it, it's government backed, whereas this is the money from an individual. Um, he has had a huge fallout with the, the co-owner of Sheffield United, a guy called Kevin McCabe. Um, and, and that's been running through the courts, and our, our silver tongue friends have been uh, beneficiaries of that. Uh, but he, I think the, the final ruling was that Prince Abdullah has to buy um, has, has to buy Sheffield United for five million pounds, which is of course a bargain, plus the value of the properties, which are owned by Kevin McCabe. And now they're arguing about the value of the properties. Um, are they punching above their weight? Yes, they are. I mean, they, they have done superbly well. Uh, the Sheffield United wage bill last season in the championship was you know, very average compared to that of uh, a lot of the clubs, especially those in receipt of parachute payments. And it was purely down to the magnificence of Chris Wilder um, and, and his ability to build a dressing room. Mm. You know, ability, you know, and, and I think in the... In the championship, that's something which is perhaps underestimated and undervalued by club owners. It's that sense of community. It's you know, it's the all for one, one for all approach taken by by some managers, and they they got the players to buy into that. And yes, the players will have had decent pay rises this year, and deservedly so. But they they did it on a on a very low budget, both transfer wise and wage wise. So that's good. So there's there's essentially to answer Jorge's question, there, there is no correlation between the, the Prince and the football, and it, it is all down to the, the management skills of Chris Wilder and the intelligent uh, buying of players and bringing through their own talent, which just shows, shows that it can be done. Even in the Premier League, you can build a creative team without spending millions of pounds. Yep, and uh, you know, Sheffield United, they're playing good football. Um, and, and, I, and I used to love their Admiral kit in the 1970s as well. I, there's, there's something about that Sheffield. The Sheffield rivalry tends to go under the radar a little bit with the rest of us, the, the Steel City derby. But I mean, it, it's intense. But I mean, I, I remember Tony Curry in the seventies. Sheffield United. There was, a, there was a slight hint of glamour about Sheffield United, and, and it, it amazes me that Chris Wilder again is never mentioned because he's older, because he's you know, a working class bloke. I imagine he never gets mentioned in terms of the big jobs coming up. And it's, it's amazing how. English football tends to ignore the talent under their very noses. I mean, he's never going to manage England, and yet he, he won't even get an interview. It astonishes me. But anyway, that's that's. Thank you for that question, Jorge. And I'm sorry that the international question developed into a little England rant. <laughs> that wasn't the, that wasn't meant to be the case. Contradicting myself, but as Oscar Wilde said, to be able to hold two contradictory thoughts at the same time is the mark of a gentleman. So there you go. Um, Miles Louder. Now, this is a question I think is really interesting. Um, Miles says, you often hear pundits and the like. I think that's us, the like, but certainly. And about pundits, we're definitely the like. Um, 
he says people are always saying that money is so much more important in the modern game compared with, say, 40 years ago. Uh, is this a myth? Because surely, he says, ever since the minimum wage was scrapped, 1961, you're welcome, clubs have had to um, generate a level of income to pay for outgoing. So surely it's only the scale that's changed, in a sense. So context, before 1961, the players could only be paid £20 um, a, a month, was, was the I believe, or well, £20 a week, sorry, was the, the, the way you couldn't be paid more than that. They got paid less than that in summer. And then thanks to Jimmy Hill, who many of us will know as a, as one of those pundits, um, ex-manager, of course, of Coventry, um, super innovator in his own way, that minimum wage was scrapped. For a lot of people, a generation above us, that was the day football got broke, basically. And it was that that led to, to this, essentially. But it's an interesting question for Miles. Why is money so much more important now than it was back in 1965, 75, 85? Um, it's because of the popularity of the game. Right. Yeah, we, 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 we're old enough to remember going to matches in 75 and 85. Um, you know, I, I remember Manchester United having the, the highest attendances in the country at 38,000 a match. Mm. So, so football has changed. It, I think it's partly due to... Euro 96, which which made it sexy to, to, to like football yeah. again. And that was a big boost. Um, you, you could say that the creation of the Premier League and the, the introduction of a more cosmopolitan playing force has, has benefited the game as well in terms of horrible worthies as a product, which the Premier League has then gone on to export around the rest of the world. You know, we, there's a lot of people that criticise the money in football. A lot of that money comes from overseas. It, it is one of our best export industries mm. um, in, in terms of entertainment and talent. And it is one thing with this country historically and presently is fantastic at. Well, I suppose as well, if you add the broadcasting money from Sky... The more money Sky put into football, the more important they make it because it has to be important for it to be sold to people around the world. So, of course, they give it this massive significance. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm, I remember the fuss about when Trevor Francis became the, the world's first million pound player. And, and, you know, there were editorials in newspapers to say this was madness and people would stop going to the game. And now you'd be furious. I mean, we only paid two million quid for Jordan Ayew and you're furious. What are we doing only paying two million pounds for a player? I know he's not worth it, but we've still got to pay 10 million quid because otherwise you can't look at your mates in the pub. This is paying two million. It's ludicrous. So, but it's an interesting question though because it is, it's, I, you know, we, we forget that there was football before the Premier League and it didn't need paying for. Now, the final question because I'm aware we are, um, we are overrunning guys, um, significant made up length of podcast thing that this research he said he did about the optimal length of people's concentration levels uh i hate to think somebody would be falling off their bike now because it's gone over 48 minutes he simply doesn't know what to do this should have stopped i should be at work by now um this is a proper old-fashioned question because this this comes from julian tate um and it's a club specific question we haven't had a club specific question for quite some time uh but julian tate said i would like your insight and uh, he specified that he said, I'd like Kieran's insight. Again, it comes back to what I said before. I do know some stuff. I, I just don't know about football finance, really, so he's probably best asking you than me. Um, Julian's a Huddersfield Town fan. He'd like your insight into their finances because he said, as a supporter, it's very confusing at the moment since the sale of the club from Dean Hoyle to Phil Hodgkinson. Uh, it's a Phil Hodgkinson that has given a few interesting interviews that seems to have split the fans. And despite two years at the top table, there seems to be little or nothing left. Now, as a comedian, I... Always find that word interesting, interesting. 
because that's the last thing. When you say it to somebody, what did you think of the show? And they go, yeah, it's interesting. You you start to panic, really, because uh, interesting covers a number of bases. In my world, it normally means not funny. And in, in in the football world, it means, I'm not saying dodgy, but it it, it is strange because you've got a club who, who two seasons ago, Huddersfield were probably everybody's second favourite club in the Premier League in that patronising way. It was a good story. One of the most successful clubs in the country in the in the in the 30s, which people forget, led by the great Herbert Chapman, another brilliant innovator, league titles, FA Cup wins. So it was good for for, for fans of traditional football to see them back. They were fans that were enjoying their time in the Premier League, and everybody said, even if they get relegated, when they get relegated, they'll have made some money. But it seems that that money's not there anymore. Yeah, it's a bit of a funny one. I think uh, Huddersfield fans, they, they were delighted to stay up in, in the first season. Mm. Um, the, the, yeah, the the former owner, Dean Hoyle, said, when we're promoted, I'm not going to put up ticket prices. You know, I'm going to reward you because you've shown faith with the club over the past few years. So there was a, there was a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a, a love-in, you know, certainly a, you know, the crest of a positive vibe for that first season. They stayed up and then the second season, they struggled badly. And and they were relegated, but I think fans thought, well, we, we've we've not spent much on wages, mm. and they certainly had one of the lowest wages wage bills in the Premier League. So therefore, with a combination of money made from that and parachute payments, we'll be in a strong position to go for promotion this year. Mm. And that's not materialised. They, they've not bought players. They've they've sort of been a, a mainly a, a selling club or buying bargains or players out of contract. Um, and I think part of the reason for that, uh, I, I went into their accounts and it did make reference to the sale of the club. But it said that the previous owner, Dean Hoyle, um, he'd lent the club money interest-free, and we discussed this earlier in the show, but... Uh, Huddersfield have to pay him back £45 million. So that's a big, big chunk of your Mm. uh, parachute payments. So that means that they've not got money to invest in the squad. They're going to have to sell some of the better players to get them off the wage bill and things of that nature. And um, they've been taken over by a company called Pure Sports Consultancy Limited, so I thought, well, OK, let, let's see how big Pure Sports Consultancy is. Went and did my paperwork. Um, Pure Sports Consultancy have £10 in the bank. That's it. Wow. Really? And 10 shares. And, and, and that's it. So you're going, well, they can't have paid very much for the club. You know, perhaps it was part of the deal was that you are going to be uh, to the old owner, you effectively walk away. You'll get a relatively small fee, but you'll get your loans back. But of course, you're getting your loans back from the football club, not from the new owners. I mean, forgive me for saying this, Huddersfield fans, but pure sports consultancy sounds like so. If Alan Partridge was setting up a company to buy a club, he'd call it pure sports consultancy. Was this company set up just to buy the club, or was this an existing company? Well, it, it's been in existence since. 2015, 2016, so it right. could be that the owner was thinking of getting involved in some sort of sport. It's, it's had no transactions. It's been dormant, but I've, I just sort of managed to pick up the most recent balance sheet. Now, you know, since then, perhaps something else has happened, but it, it does appear to be effectively a, a form of a shell company. Um, and, you know, un- unless more money has been put into pure sports consultancy to allow it to buy the shares in Huddersfield Football Town, so Huddersfield Football Club for a big fee, 
um, you, you, you can see that the club's going to have an issue because it's it's got to pay back these loans. So would it would it have been Phil Hodgkinson, Pure Sports, who bought in the the, the joint managers from Lincoln? Because presumably that would have cost them a fair bit of money as well, wouldn't it? That's right. It was the uh, it's the Cowley brothers, isn't it? The Cowley brothers, yeah. Yes, yes. So I, I think they've they've had a bit of a, a revolving door uh, manager wise uh, Huddersfield over the you know since since you know, last January. Mm. Um, they'll. I, I, I know. I know Lincoln did get some compensation. I think we're probably talking no more than say a quarter of a million, uh, because the Cowley brothers originally came with Lincoln from non-league. Yeah. So I think their buyout clause was relatively low compared to some of the numbers we get see bandied about when you know, the likes of Conte and so on come from other countries in Europe. I, I feel for Huddersfield fans. The, the last job I did before this closed down was on a football show, and there was a young lad. There was a Huddersfield fan who made the terrible mistake of while they were in the Premier League of giving it Charlie Big Bollocks for two years. He was really, he was really, we were a Premier League team now. And then, so obviously, you know, football fans have long memories. So the, the rest of the office pelted him when they got relegated. But he was so optimistic. I mean, he genuinely thought, he said all those things that you said, club's in a good situation. We must have made money from the Premier League. We've got the parachute payments. We're going to be in a good, and Within four or five weeks, it became plain that the, something had gone from the club. The spirit and, and football fans can spot that, can't they? You know, you and I would go to a game there and not notice any difference. But a Huddersfield fan just suddenly instinctively knows a spark has gone, and he just you, you we felt for him to the extent that we stopped taking the piss out of him for a, a good two weeks, basically, which is as kind as a football fan can get, essentially. But it, it's. It's odd, is it? Because you, it also gives the lies. We talk a lot about clubs living within their means to get promoted in the company, like Rotherham's model, which is a, a good model. But Huddersfield, you think they they should be in a better off situation than they are, shouldn't they? And that's it, it's why we do this pod is so people like you can examine the reasons why clubs like that, on behalf of the fans, aren't in a better situation. And then your heart sinks when you hear things like Pure Sports have got ten pound in the bank because it just. You know, every now, every now and again, you and I would get romantic, as we did a couple of weeks ago. Not in that way about the game I'm talking about, obviously. Uh, uh, um, but then a story like this just knocks the romantic edge off, doesn't it? Really, that's right. I mean, it, it could be that Pure Sports will come in and they will assess the situation over the summer and decide to put more money in. I mean, and I, as, as an away fan, Huddersfield's one of those places I love going to. Yeah. Um, I remember going there on a Tuesday night. They beat us 7-1. So, you know, we, we were hacked <laughs> off afterwards. And as we were walking out, uh, the, the guy in charge of catering came to us and said, sorry, lads, here's free burgers on us. And we were as happy as could be, you know, because what what a fantastic gesture that was. Yeah, well, yeah, and what a, what a great way of getting rid of all the burgers that you can't sell. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lovely gesture. Though. I, I, they've gone up in my estimation. I didn't. I'm sure I've, I've got. I'm amazed. I haven't got them tattooed. If anybody beat you seven one, I'm sure I would have run out and got that tattooed. Anyway, well done, Huddersfield. Um, let's get them back in the Premier League as quickly as possible. Uh, now, apparently, Kieran, thank you. This is the end of the pod. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for um, being there, Kieran, with that rather leery shirt. Um, it's nice. Another Fred Perry. That's good. Um, uh, and well done for your reasons for buying Fred Perry shirts, by the way, which 
people might like to uh, make their own reasons up, but uh, Kieran is protesting against the people protesting against Fred Perry for using uh, mixed race and BAME models in their catalogue. So well done. Uh, but Kieran, apparently we don't need to say, according to Guy, we don't need to say it's adapted production this week. Apparently everyone knows it's adapted production now. But what we do need to say, presumably because Guy wants a new car, uh, is why not subscribe? If you like the show, Guy says now, please subscribe. And he's underlined the please uh, in your podcast app and leave us a rating. Um, yeah, why not? Yeah, a nice rating. Uh, it's, it did make me laugh when uh, Guy tweeted to say thank you to everybody who left ratings and reviews, to which I had to point out thank you to nearly everybody He'd left ratings and reviews. There's one or two of them don't deserve thanking. Um, if you have a question for us, questions at priceoffootball.com. Um, and as you know, we will answer your questions in, in a very detailed and quite lengthy way today. Uh, so thank you for staying with us. And we will be back on Thursday. Thanks a lot. The Price of Football. Cheerio, folks. Stay safe. Price of football.